we doing? Good. All right. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the uh, lead pastors here. And uh, just a few things. So I haven't had an opportunity to just open up the text and, and, and preach a, a full sermon since before Christmas. Man, I hope, uh, hope you had some coffee this morning. I did. One of the things that's been really bubbling up in my life over the course of the last month or two is uh, how much and how, and, and how in different ways um, Scripture influences all of the parts of my life. And I, I want to just pull that apart for just a minute so that you understand why when we gather to encourage one another, we, we always open the Bible. Right? For some of you that have been in church a long time, you're like, well, duh, but it's more than that. And I want to I explain why. And for those of you that are new, I want, I want to explain why. It's not because we believe you all need like little bits of seminary. It's not because we think you need to learn more facts and that somehow those facts will do something. Like you can walk out of here and be like, well, I learned a few things today. Wait until I tell Bob. Like it's not informational. Scripture for us is transformational and it happens in different ways and the Bible tries to explain it to us in, in different illustrations and analogies um, and, and then practically if you've been walking with the Lord and pursuing this life with Christ for any amount of time then you realize, I hope, the impact of Scripture on your life in all of these different ways. Sometimes they're very subtle, sometimes they're, they're, they're shocking um, and, and the more you realize it, I think the hungrier you get for it. That's actually how it's supposed to work. The, the, the more it impacts you and the more uh, Jesus is transforming you, the more desire you have for him and, ha and for his word. And so uh, the Bible talks about this, and we covered this because we're at the very end of Ephesians, at the end of chapter 6 here. But in chapter 5, we were doing a family series, and we covered this little analogy, and we kind of glossed over uh, part of the analogy. And the analogy is this. In, in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So it's an analogy about how husbands should love their wives, and it's pointing to how Jesus loves the church. All of the believers that gather together in our family and love one another so well that the world takes note. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her having... Now here's the analogy. It's very interesting. It's, it's an analogy inside of an analogy. It's an enigma. It's a mystery. It's like inception. It's a dream within a dream. 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, if I'm just going to be really honest. If the first time you read that, you understood it, you were lying. Because that is confusing. That he might sanctify her, that set her apart, set the church apart, having cleansed her, the church, you and I, having cleansed us by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I mean, I've read that a lot of times, and I'm still trying to wrap, I think scripture is difficult to understand at times on purpose. I think that the truth of it has to be revealed to us. I don't think that it happens immediately. I, I think it happens slowly over time. And so I've just read this and read this and read this. And I love this idea that you and I, okay, this is what it says. You and I as believers in Jesus need to be washed with the word of God, with scripture, like water. 
Anyone need to be washed? Anyone, anyone enjoy a good shower? Like, you know you need a shower? Now, listen, this is something that hopefully you learn in your teenage years, because the teens, when they become teens, don't realize they need a shower. You know what I mean. And you have to go, listen, we need to talk about hygiene, because there are other people in this house. You need to be washed. And so we create a habit at some point where we realize, like, man, I got to get, get in the shower probably every day. Some of us, maybe more than once a day. And we have to be washed with water. And, and the Bible's saying, you and I, every day, maybe more than once a day, need to be washed with Scripture. That there is a cleansing effect to opening up the word of God. And sometimes it doesn't matter how you feel. Here's the interesting thing about a shower. Whether you feel like a shower or you don't feel like a shower, there is still an impact to being washed. And so when you open the word of God, whether your heart is set correctly or not, if you open it up, there's a chance that God is going to begin to wash you. What is he washing you of? Our, our, our sin the, the, the pull back into a sinful life, the pull back into the world, the pull to submit to desires of the flesh and not desires of the spirit. And so we open up the word of God. When we come in here on a Sunday, we open up the word of God. Every day, you open up your Bible, or you open up your Bible app, or you, you get on a little reading plan. And sometimes you don't feel, let's be honest, sometimes you barely even listen to the reading app. You're like, is it already over? I don't Did I catch anything in that? But the thing is, you're pouring that water over top of you and you're letting it cleanse you and you're letting it have an impact on you. And listen, sometimes, sometimes scripture doesn't feel that way. Sometimes it's less like a shower and it's more like a bath. Anyone ever been really sore and just need a good soak? The older you get, the more you're gonna understand this. Get some little bath bombs, not that any men would ever do that. <clears throat> And you get in there, you just let it soak. You ever do that with scripture? You just read a verse. And you read a verse, you read that verse again, and you read that verse, and all day long, you're just thinking about that like. And slowly, God is just soaking that scripture and that truth of that word into you. Just slowly, it's just, just digesting it, and you're chewing on it, and you're like, I don't think I ever understood what that meant. I don't, I don't think I ever understood what that meant. I, I don't even remember reading this before, and I'm sure I've read this before. This morning, I'm in the shower listening to my Bible app on my reading plan, so I'm being washed and I'm being washed. <laughs> and we get to the story where Jesus heals the, the young boy who has the demon who makes him mute and throws him into the fire. You know, the demon throws him into the water and his, his father has asked the disciples to cast the demon out and the, the demon won't come out and they don't know why and there's a big commotion and Jesus comes over and he's like, what's going on? You can just imagine Jesus with his hands on his hips. What's going on? And they're like, we can't cast this demon out. And the dad says this. The dad says, can you save him? Can you save my son? And Jesus says, anything's possible if you believe. What is he talking about? He's talking about faith, right? Anything's possible if you believe. And here's the dad. This broke me, like, to tears. The dad said, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Like, I'm not even strong enough to believe but I want to. 
And there's times where you, a verse just soaks and it just soaks and it just soaks and you don't realize it's transforming you one degree of glory to another, one percent at a time until you look back two years ago and remember what a mess your life was and remember how far Jesus brought you. Because it is just soaked into you. It is just soaked into you. That's what we do with the word of God. We open it up. Sometimes it showers over the top of us. Sometimes we soak on it. Sometimes, let's be honest, for some of us, it's kind of like a brine. It's just got to flavor us over a long period of time. Because the flavor we start with ain't really all that great. Kind of tough. A little stringy. But the word of God soaks into us and it begins to change us so that we taste like a Christian. So that the fruit that is produced from us, the smell of us, the taste of us, dealing with us, the tone of us is more Christ-like. Whether it's washing over us, whether we soak in it, whether it's a brine that we just put that meat in and put in the fridge for two weeks, it is scripture that is sometimes slowly and sometimes quickly doing work on our life. So when we come in and gather together, when you open up your Bible app, when you open up the Word of God, when you get a devotional, you're exposing yourself to the truth of God so that it will change you. Change how you think and change what you do. It can be quick, it can be considered, it can be long-term, it can be a reflection, it can be something you ponder over. I, I read this quote about training because really the Christian life is about taking the tools that God's given us in the grace that he's given us and putting them into some sort of practice. It says this, if you want to complete a marathon, you have to run hundreds of training miles. If you want to learn a foreign language, you have to spend some hours memorizing declensions and conjugations. If you want to play the piano, you have to learn the scales and how to read music. And if you want to accomplish anything for God, you have to spend time with the spiritual disciplines, studying the Bible, praying, church involvement, fasting, serving, being generous. Being a Christian is not a learned skill or a discipline. It's a living relationship with our Lord Jesus. But like any other relationship, if you want it to be deep and meaningful, beyond the superficial and empty formalities, it takes time and commitment. Do you set aside time for spiritual training? Do you let the word wash over you? Do you soak in it? Listen, it's actually very easy. I know it seems hard. It's actually very easy. You, you go to your Bible app and you turn on notifications and that sucker will ding at you every day. You turn off all the notifications on your phone except for the Bible app. Give it some attention and let it wash over you. And then you go meet together like we do and we talk about it and we chew on it and we digest it and work on applying it. Last week, we talked about uh, underestimating the battle that we're in. We're in this series that's essentially just one giant illustration. This, this whole armor of God is a giant illustration. And it started with uh, Pastor Vance talking to us about underestimating the battle that we're in and targeting the wrong enemies, not even understanding who the enemy is in the battle. And so we have these three big takeaways that we are to depend on the Lord and his strength, not our own. We're to prepare for the battle and we're to recognize the enemy and, and how often we actually get the recognition of the enemy wrong. We talked about the concept of friendly fire. And we're going to start in Ephesians 6, verse 13, and we're going to go through 13 through 17 today. So let me just read that to you and then we'll, we'll walk through it. Verse 13, therefore, so because we're in a battle, because there's a spiritual battle, 
Because we're to prepare for it as followers of Jesus. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. You can hear this word again. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Lots of things in this illustration. So we'll start with verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Last week, Pastor Vance is essentially talking about the reality of spiritual warfare, the reality of the world that we live in, the reality of being, if you are saved by Jesus, a light in what is a very dark world. We live in a broken world. It has distorted the truths of God. It is far from God. Uh, again and again in scripture, it is called, uh, it is called dark. It is darkness. And when you're saved, when God regenerates your soul, when he puts his spirit inside you and you become a light, you now are living on mission as an ambassador in a foreign land. So you're now a child of God in a fallen world. This world right now is run by Satan and demons. That's what the Bible says. And it's very easy to forget that reality that what is going on now is you and I living in occupied territory in foreign land. And and oftentimes we get really mixed up, right? Because we're patriotic, because we love the United States, because we love the freedoms that it has, because we, we, we have family in the military, because there are wonderful things about this country. We think this is our home. This is not your home. Your home is coming. You can love this land and understand you ain't here very long, son. This is your worst life. The best is yet to come. We're in a foreign land. That's the reality. Today, verses 13 through 17 is the response to the reality. Last week's the reality. Today's the response. There's a gospel formula in taking up the armor of God. We're going to talk about what the armor of God is, but there's such a gospel formula here. You and I are soldiers, and we are the... Anyone ever see uh, the Captain America movie before he got the formula? You, you remember? He was like, he's like this tall. He's like 85 pounds. They won't even, they won't even let him enlist in the army. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, that's you and me. I just want you to understand what the Bible is going to say is you are not Goliath. You're not even David. You're that guy, but the armor of God is impenetrable. So you got a real, here's the formula. You got a really, 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 really weak soldier and impenetrable armor. There's a formula here. You without armor, man, that's a bad deal. That ain't a fight you want to bet on, but you with armor Invincible. Which means some things about our 
behavior, our mentality, our, our mindset, our, our actions when it comes to putting the armor on. It's essential. It's life or death. You didn't create the armor. It wasn't yours to begin with. It didn't come to be by your power. And yet without it, you are helpless. You can't save yourself. This is a gospel formula. You can't save yourself. It was all done for you. But you must accept it, surrender to the king, and then live in the new identity. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. The whole armor of God. Because you can have pieces of armor on and not put it all on, and it's still a problem, is it not? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Verse 14, stand therefore. So he's going to walk through this. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. Now, these pieces of armor that he's going to walk through, there's some really interesting parts to this whole illustration that he's going to use. A lot of it comes from the Old Testament, from Isaiah. So we're going to kind of look at the, the places he pulled this from previous prophets as they've explained this. But the belt of truth specifically would have been the first thing that a Roman soldier put on. He'd put the belt on. And what it would have done is it would have fastened his underclothes together so they didn't come loose. And it would have been where he would carry the sheath so that he could uh, put his sword. And it would be where he would attach the rest of the armor to so that it would all be anchored. So everything started with the belt of truth. The belt of truth was about a six-inch thick belt that would come all the way around. It would actually support his abdomen and to support his lower back. Some of you, as you've gotten older like me, know that you need to support your lower back when you go to Walmart. I mean, it doesn't even matter anymore. You're gonna put on the belt of truth first. And you know what's interesting about putting on the belt of truth is that if you were a Roman soldier, you would only, you'd take that belt and you'd, you'd cinch it up when you were on duty. And when you were off duty, you could loosen it. You wore it all the time. But on duty, you had to tighten that thing up, you had to pull in all of your abdomen and your core and tighten it and belt it up and be, and now you, that meant on duty. And if you saw a soldier and they had loosened the belt and it was kind of stuck, that means they were off duty. They weren't on right now. Do you know when you're off duty? Sunday morning. Sunday morning is when you're off duty. See, Sunday morning is when you come in to encourage one another about the battle that's out there. And where America has gotten this backwards and we've, we've decided that church is some sort of weird thing that I go to, not, a, not what I am part of. Church is what you're part of, not what you go to. This is just a building. It was put together by men by the grace of God. It won't be here forever. The church will until Jesus comes back. You don't go to church. You are the church. Sunday morning, you're off duty. Sunday morning, we come in, and we're licking our wounds a little bit, right? You're coming in on a Sunday morning, you're going, man, the week was hard. It was difficult. I went through these battles and these trials and these people, and, it was, and we encourage one another. We walk with one another. We, we patch wounds up on Sunday morning. We, we talk about what happened and what we're going to go back out to, but when you leave this place, you're on duty. You're tightening the belt back up. So you're not on duty for 90 minutes a week. You're off duty for 90 minutes a week. We got it backwards. You're going to start with the belt of truth because everything starts with the truth of the gospel, the truth of sin, 
the truth of God's judgment. God's truth is perfect. It's immutable. It will not change. There is moral uh, objectivity in this world. There are things that are objectively good and objectively bad. And we live in a world where everything is subjective. Well, that's bad for you, but it's not bad for me. That may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. That is the lie that we started with in the garden. God's truth is right and wrong. Exactly. Regardless of how you feel about it. And we start with God's truth because everything is attached to what God says is good and what God says is bad. In, in, in the last few decades, it's become really popular um, to get these, see these guys with tattoos that say, only God can judge me. Have you seen this before? Only God can judge me? You've probably, someone's probably told you this. Only God can judge me. Guess what? He will. Do you hear me? He will. And every single one of us will be found lacking. And the only thing that will matter when we're judged is has he covered us in his grace? Is our name written in the book of life because we surrendered our life to him and his blood on the cross covered us because none of us are making it there because God will judge you. He will judge me. God's truth, objective truth. There's only one God. There's only one way to salvation. There's only one way to life, one path. John 14, 6 would say it this way. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God's truth. We start with that. When, when, when inevitably the attacks begin to come from the enemy, from Satan, from the world, from demonic spirits, when, when we begin to be attacked, and you will be attacked. When the attacks come from the father of lies, that's actually a name given to Satan. We rely on the truth, on what God has said and who God is and his character on God's word, the Bible, and Jesus. Truth. When doubt begins to creep into your life and you begin to feel the condemnation of your actions and your sin, it's truth that we grab onto. When, when, when we begin to have those conversations in our head about other people, oh, I'm the only person that does that? Oh, I'm sorry. Get off your pretentious horse. When we begin to have those conversations about other people in our head, it is God's truth that pulls us back and anchors us. That the person we're talking about in our head is an image bearer of Christ. That we don't deserve anything that we have and we've gotten it all by grace. God's truth that anchors us there. When we begin to doubt God's goodness in our life because of circumstances, it's God's truth. I had someone reach out to me this week and say, I'm really having a lot of doubts about my faith. And I said, I need more context than that. We all have doubts about our faith at some point or another. Tell me what you mean. And they said, and they, 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 they gave me three circumstances in their life that have been bad. These three things, oh, these three things. And I said, 
Welcome to the party, pal. What did Jesus say? He said, in this life, you will have trouble. But take heart. Because I have overcome the world. God's truth, when we begin to focus on our circumstances and they begin to overwhelm us and begin to change our mindset, it's God's truth that anchors us back to what the real reality is regardless of the ups and the downs of life. When condemnation begins to soak into our life and and, and we're not walking in and realizing the forgiveness of God and the grace that he has given us, it is God's truth that pulls us back. Everything about the gospel, everything about this life with Christ is anchored to God's truth. It is objective, not subjective. It is the only truth, the only way, the only God. It must start there. In your life, in my life, when we're on that little boat in the middle of the storm and, and, and the waves begin climbing and getting bigger and bigger to the point where when you're at the bottom of the wave, I don't know if you've ever been on the ocean during a storm, and you're at the bottom of the wave, the wave is so tall that it blots out the sky. All you see is a wall of water. Has anyone ever been on a boat? All you ever see, you see is a wall of water? If you haven't been on the boat and seen that, Uh, you will realize how puny you are. You've seen movies at least. The wonder of cinema. You're on the boat and the wave is so tall, there's no sky, there's only water. It is God's truth we're clinging to when the sky is blacked out, when circumstances overwhelm. It's God's truth. We start with truth and then having fastened and cinched up the belt of truth, we're going to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this is the one I've gotten wrong for years. The, the breastplate in the, in, the, in the Roman world um, would have been chain mail. It might have been leather. Uh, it was made of different things depending on the era and the time, but, but it would have come over top of the torso and draped all the way down to attach to the belt, usually all the way down, almost to the knees, and it would go behind you as well. So it's, a, it's protecting everything, your whole torso, the front, the back, all the way down. But, but when it says breastplate of righteousness, I always thought, yes, because God's made us righteous. So we're breastplate of righteousness, it's, 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 this, it's this righteousness of Christians, but it's, it's not your righteousness at all that you're wearing. You put on his righteousness. In Isaiah 59, 17, it says this, he put on righteousness as a breastplate. This is Paul reaching back to the Old Testament prophet and just pulling this forward and tying it to a Roman soldier so that the Ephesian church can see this. You have this massive piece of armor from neck to thigh, front and back, and it, and, it, and it doesn't just protect you. Do you know what else it does? It identifies you. The, the, the breastplate identified you as a Roman soldier, as what team you were on. Do you know what Christ's righteousness does for you? It identifies you. Our identity is rooted in being a new creation of Christ. The righteousness that we wear from Christ is our new identity. Our old identity is dead. We buried it with Jesus. At the cross, raised with him, wearing his righteousness, not our own. So it's not our good deeds. Your identity is not your good deeds. Your identity 
is not how you behave. Your identity is not rooted in your failure or your achievement. You'll never accomplish something that will change your identity. Your identity is granted and gifted to you by Jesus Christ. And you and I have to put it on. We have to wear it. That's our participation. We didn't get to earn the breastplate. We have to put it on and wear it. Whose righteousness do you wear, Christian? Yours or his? Because yours is made out of tissue paper. A little sprinkle will dissolve it. We put on his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness. Romans 3.22, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Because of the cross, because of Jesus, we now wear his righteousness like a breastplate, like armor, like protection. It's our justification. It's our uniform. It signifies that we're on his team and his army and standing in his victory, not in defeat. So in defensive accusation, condemnation, spiritual attack, we don't point to our own deeds and our own behavior and our own morality. We put on Christ and we wear his righteousness into battle. And when the attack comes, you point at him and you go, no, I wear his righteousness. It's not based on what I've done and where I've failed. Thank the Lord. Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, Roman soldiers wore these special sort of sandals that were made out of these layers of leather, like, like really thick, and they would have these hollow hobnails that were tacked into the bottom so that they would have traction, and then they have these leather straps that would go all the way up their shin to their knee almost to root it in place, and they weren't particularly made for, for sprinting. They were made for holding their ground. They were cleats made for traction. But they could move very fast in a march, which is what they often did and needed to do. The gospel gives us readiness. Gives us readiness. What gospel? It says the gospel of peace. You know what it doesn't say? The gospel of controversy. Not the gospel of hot takes. Not the gospel of I'm right and you're wrong. Not the gospel of envy and strife and dissension. The gospel of peace. The Bible would say to as much as is possible in your own power to live at peace with all men. Peace. And that means we are ready to go forth, ready to stand our ground, ready to be in battle, ready for hand-to-hand combat. Because the gospel gives us peace, it promises us peace. So we have this belt, we have this breastplate that we've put on, Christ's righteousness. We have these shoes or sandals that we've put on our feet, the readiness of the gospel of peace. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We hold up our faith. What is faith? Faith is though we can't see it, an assurance of something that we cannot see that we know to be true. You have faith in gravity, do you not? You can't see it. You know it's true. You know it works. 
If you're not sure, please don't do this. If you're not sure, just jump off the roof. You will see the effects. We have faith in a God that is invisible to us. We have an assurance in something we can't see because God has demonstrated his goodness to us through our life time and time and time and time again. And we take that faith and and we hold it in front of us in response to spiritual attack. So so when when spiritual, when when mental, when, 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 when sin comes at us like flaming arrows, from temptation, from doubt, from wrath, from lust, from despair. Anyone ever had a good old pity party? Oh man, I'm an expert at throwing myself a little pity party. You know who else was? King David. My Lord, that guy was in his feelings all the time. When that attack comes, when we are beginning to suffer those, those, those doubts, we can hold up the shield of faith. What is the shield of faith? God is who he said he is and he does what he'll say he'll do. That's faith. God is who he said he was. And he will fulfill the promises that he's made. That's faith. And we, we hold that up to, in response to attack to quench those attacks. Oftentimes, the, the leather of the, the, the shield, there's like a four and a half foot shield, this giant thing that, that would be interlocking in the line of soldiers and, and it would be rimmed in iron uh, and, and they would drench it oftentimes as they went into battle, they would drench it in water. It's a very heavy thing now. <laughs> Got even heavier because it's soaked with water. But it's to extinguish flaming arrows that the enemy shoots at you. We hold up our shields to quench them. First John 5, 4 would say it this way. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. Our certainty that God is who he said he is. And he'll do the things that he said he'll do. Verse 17. To take the helmet of salvation. Again, that's a reference back to Isaiah 59, 17. Where it says he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. We protect our minds through salvation. We are rooted in the salvation of the Lord, protecting even our thoughts and our thought life. How do you protect your thoughts? We take our thoughts captive and we place them back on the Lord. We focus our concentration, our energy on the Lord and how he saved us, the helmet of salvation. So we have a belt, we have a breastplate, we have specific Shoes that are, that are made for the battle. We're holding a shield. And the last thing you would put on is your helmet, this helmet of salvation. Now you have your armor. And now we got our one offensive weapon. Lastly, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Romans carried a short sword, not a long sword. But that little short sword took over the world. All of the known world at that time was under the Roman Empire. It was double-edged and incredibly sharp. The spirit is the power of the sword, just as the spirit is the power of the Bible. And And the text here calls that out. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I want you to hear this, Christian, living in 2023. The power of the Bible is in the Holy Spirit. The power to change people's lives is in the Holy Spirit. 
That's why people can read the Bible and not change. That's why people can read the Bible and not see the truth of it. The Holy Spirit has to reveal the truth of Scripture to someone, and the, and, and the change that happens, even through Scripture, happens because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So the power of the sword, in this analogy, is the Holy Spirit. And if you're holding a sword without the Holy Spirit, frankly, you're just untrained and you're going to hurt yourself. It's like giving a four-year-old a knife. It's a bad idea. It's a sword of the Spirit. Outside of the Spirit's work, it's useless. That's why people can read it and not see truth revealed. It's why the Bible in your own power is pretty useless. It is the Holy Spirit that gives Scripture its penetrating sharpness. And we, I want you to see this. We carry swords, not hammers. Okay, all you Thor fans, I'm sorry. You have a sword, not a hammer. Why? Because we don't bludgeon people to death. That's why hitting them over the head with your Bible doesn't do any good, physically or metaphorically. (laughs) Hebrews 4.12 would say it this way, for the word of God is living and active. Yes, this, this, this dusty old tome of a Bible from 2,000 years ago or more, is living and active because of the Holy Spirit. It's not dead in ancient text. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. How deep does your sword go? It pierces to the division of soul and spirit. It's really sharp. At midnight on the shopping channel, when they want you to buy those Chinese knives... It's sharper. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning, how sharp is your sword? Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's how sharp that sword is. That's why, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, it would be dangerous. That's why we open it up every single day. Why? Number one, you carry a sword, not a hammer. Why? We don't bludgeon people with it. We let the Spirit cut them. Christian, who's mad at someone, you don't bludgeon them to death. You let the Holy Spirit do the cutting, not your words. You with a sharp tongue. Your tongue was not meant to cut them. You hear me? Your tongue was not meant to cut them. The spirit does the cutting and the piercing and the division of soul and spirit, of thoughts and intentions. Number two, you carry a sword. So do you understand why not only is it important to recognize the right enemy for the defensive side, do you recognize why it's important to know who the enemy is for the offensive side? Like imagine coming into church and swinging your sword at, I don't know, the people in the pew next to you. Oh, hit a little close to home. Ever happened to you? Ever gotten an ear lopped off by a fellow congregant? These swords are sharp. Be careful where you're swinging it. Use it well. Equip yourself. Train in it so that you carry a very sharp sword. Know the enemy before you swing the sword. Amen? 
No one kills the wounded like the church does. No one eats their own like the church does. Why? Because we're carrying swords and we're not very careful about where we swing them. Be careful. Be careful. Know your enemy. Let me just ask you to consider something in the Bible when you see how God changes people. In fact, let me ask you in your own life how God has transformed. I would submit to you that God does a lot more surgery than he does amputations, beheadings. You carry a very sharp sword. But if you look at how God uses scripture to pierce us, usually he does it very gently. It doesn't feel that way, but he does little bits at a time. Because if he were to cut it all out at the same time, boy, there might not be much left of me. He's gentle. He's careful. He's surgical. So when you wind back and start swinging that bad boy around, people are going to get hurt. What am I telling you? I'm telling you, be careful with your words. Be, care- be careful with your words, even if you think you're justifying them with Scripture. We attack temptation with the word of God, okay? So what do we use an offensive weapon? What are our enemies? We attack temptation with the word of God. That's what Jesus does. He goes out in the desert. Satan's tempting him. His responses are all scripture because it's our weapon. We attack Satan with the word of God. That's what Jesus does. We test spirits We discern spirits based on the word of God. So if you're not sure about a decision, if you're not sure about a conviction, if you're not sure about something that's occurring in your life, we open up the word of God and we test it because it's our weapon. A sword in untrained hands is dangerous. So train. Don't put the sword down. Train. I'm not telling you don't read your Bible. I'm telling you read your Bible, but aim it at yourself primarily. Train. There's a battle. You can't not train. You can't put the sword away. Have the sword out and train with it. Jesus' word is power. His word goes forth. His word never returns void. And we, we overlook it and we take it for granted and we miss it. Listen, all the time we miss the fact that his word has so much power. We talked about this at the beginning of the sermon that, that we take his word, it's a different analogy when, he, when, when uh, the Bible is describing it as water instead of a sword and we, we, we pour it over ourselves and we bathe in it and we soak in it and we let it soak in because his word has power. So we pick it up and we, we study it, and we're guided by it, and we're shaped by it. And listen, all of these things, all of this stuff, we do so that it changes us. So it's not an informational exercise. We're like, man, I'm glad I learned so many things that I'll never do. That was called high school history class. <clears throat> these are practical things. We study them so that they change us. They're transformational. We read them, we point them at ourselves, and we go, how come I'm not known for my gentleness? That might be a problem, amen? How come I'm not really consumed without doing one another with showing honor to other believers? How come I'm not captivated by living in peace with other people? 
How come I don't like to cry and mourn when others cry and mourn? How come I don't like to live generously when I have enough? And we don't close it and go, well, I'll think about that another day. We let it soak in. We let it pierce to the division of bone and marrow, to the very intentions of our soul and spirit. We have the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have the shoes of readiness of the gospel of peace. We have the shield of faith. We have the helmet of salvation. And lastly, we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We're in a battle. Two years ago, years ago, year, just over a year ago, just over a year ago, we were talking about vision for the church. And our vision for the church at that time, or where we felt God was really moving our church and leading our church, was that we wanted to, through a gospel culture, create gentle, generous, genuine soldiers for Jesus Christ. Do you remember that? And I remember some people going, ugh, soldiers. Yes, soldiers, because this isn't a retirement home, because this isn't a country club, because this isn't a book club, because we're not in heaven yet. We're on a battlefield, and I care that you're on a battlefield and that you don't seem to recognize that you're on a battlefield. Can you imagine the tourist that walks out of the trench in World War I across the no man's land is like, this is kind of a desolate place. And you're like, there's bullets whizzing by. See, here's the problem. Because it's a spiritual battle, you don't recognize the fact that there's bombs going off everywhere, that there's bullets whizzing by, that people are dying next to you. And we get oblivious in our own life because we're so self-centered to think everything's gonna be all right and when it's not all right, something must be wrong. Oh my gosh, why am I having problems? You're in a battle! There's a war going on! Are you kidding? You, you, you don't come in to, to train for this battle for an hour on Sunday morning and then live in a retirement home six days a week. That's not the life you were given. In this world, you will have trouble. So, so we just keep picking up the word of God and we, we keep training with it and then we get in together. And, and this is why like uh, online church like vexes me so much. It's like I love that when people can't come, they can watch and they can participate. But man, I can't hug them. I can't cry with them. I can't disciple them. I can't get in their life and go, what's happening? Because I can't see them. And so like as much as I like it, I'm like, you need to be here. Because we want to encourage you. And we want to walk with you. And we, we want you to train with us because you're in a battle too. The battle didn't end because you stayed on your couch today. If it was that easy, we'd all stay on our couches. So it ma this matters. Your mindset matters. Because if you look at your difficulties and you don't realize in your, you're in a battle, then you're always looking at your difficulties like, God must just not like me. You know, I must have just done something wrong. But when you're in a battle, you begin to realize that trouble is just the motto of the day. And in reality, the fact that you're still walking and you have the armor of God is a blessing. 
Number one, just three takeaways for you today. Number one, you live on a battlefield. So would you get it in your head? Like we live on a battlefield. Number two, you're weak. I am so weak. We're the little puny Captain America before the injections. You're weak, but he's strong. He is strong. And you were never meant to do this life apart from him. So would you stop it? Would you stop trying? I sat across from a guy this week who has just gone through devastation in the last two years of his life. I mean, devastation. His life, he thought, was perfect until two years ago. And then two years of nothing but shame, failure, condemnation, more failure, people ostracizing him, people running from him. Like he is at the bottom of the bottom and he won't grab hold of Christ. He's right there. I mean, he's literally in the storm, sinking in the water, and Jesus has got his hand out, and I'm watching it. And I'm like, just take his hand? I can't do it for you. I would. I would just like connect you if I could. I can't make you love Jesus. He's right there. Grab hold of him. And he's like, I just don't, I can't seem to shake the shame. And I'm like, you don't shake it. You grab hold of him. Stop trying to do it yourself. God created all of this armor, whatever analogy you want to use for you and I to wear and to live in this righteousness to cover us. And all we do, because we couldn't earn it and we couldn't create it, all we do is we put it on and enjoy the fact that he's given it to us. But here's what we do. We forget we're in a battlefield and we leave it at home and we go walking out on the battlefield with nothing on and we're just taking arrow after arrow and we're cursing God. Why? And you're like. You're weak, he's strong. And lastly, you have to put the armor on. You got to put it on. You're weak and you own impenetrable armor. I don't know, I'm just gonna go out on a limb here. Wear it! You're weak, he's strong, he gave you his armor, would you put it on? Would you put it on? This is, this is a reason, and you guys have met this person. Maybe you were this person, maybe sometimes you are this person, I don't know. But this is the reason that when you meet that person that says, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. That I just go, what? That in the Bible, there's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. Christianity is a team sport, guys. There's no Rambos who just go out on their own. In the Roman army, the only reason all this stuff works is they're standing in a perfect line with discipline because they've trained together and they trust one another and their shields are touching on both sides with another shield and another shield so there's no gap for the enemy to exploit. You don't have one soldier run out on the battlefield by themselves. That's called getting killed. So you, you get in to a body of believers, not just to use your spiritual gifts, not just to encourage one another, not just to be encouraged, but you get in for protection. Because together, when the, the herd, when the sheep get together, the shepherd can protect them. When that one goes off on its own, it's lamb stew, guys. 
The, the lone wolf Christian lacks spiritual discipline and training, has no squad mates, has no church family, stands on the battlefield as the enemies close in, oblivious to dangers, to the enemy, to the battle, to the armor, to the army of Christians. And then when attacked, feels like it came out of nowhere. I don't know what happened. The trained believer, rooted in Christ's identity, trained in discipline in the faith, battle-tested through suffering and fires, equipped in armor, standing shoulder to shoulder with people he or she loves and trusts, facing the enemy and ready for the fight. That's what the Bible's describing to you. You didn't earn it. I darn well don't deserve it. But I better put it on. We're going to uh, participate in uh, one of the church ordinances, one of the things that Jesus left us when he ascended uh, to do, and that is called communion or the Lord's Supper. It's where we remember what Jesus did for us. And we do that through the taking of juice and bread. It used to be a big hunk of bread. Now you just get a little stale cracker. I'm sorry. These are the times. So uh, Elder Don's going to come up and lead us in this church ordinance and, and talk to us about well, what's next in this service and give us an opportunity to respond. I'm going to allow you to do uh, two things. One, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and grab your juice and your cracker here right now. And then secondly, if you need prayer of any type for anything, we're going to have elders and prayer team members up here while you get your elements for communion. And we're just going to pray with you and love on you. You move as the Lord leads you, and then we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper.